The question of God's existence invokes a long controversy, but in the proper light of science, anyone can see the truth. That's correct. However, you have consistently demonstrated that you've never seen the proper light of science and that you're still in the dark. Part three brings more incredible proofs from the natural world. Again, I say you can't give more until you've given at least some. And if anyone watches the previous eight episodes of this series, they'll see that you haven't given any evidence yet. While supposed experts claim all life gradually evolved after the Big Bang, you will see additional powerful evidence that everything around us could never be the product of cosmic accident, nor could it have evolved. Of course, you've never provided any such indication at any point in your whole series. All you have done is to prove that you know nothing of what you're talking about. For example, experts are not supposed they're identified by their peers as having extensive knowledge in a particular field, so that even other scholars know that these are the people to check with when you need to find out how much is known about the subject so far. So people who know more about this than you have identified people who know more about this than they do. So the experts are exactly the opposite of, say, you. Many examples reflect God's creative genius. They bear astonishing testimony to divine creation. It's astonishing that you think so because none of your examples indicate, imply, or even allow a God. Your God remains an impossibility, and you've demonstrated that belief in your God is illogical, irrational, unreasonable, willfully ignorant, and dishonest. Each of these miracles of engineering defies atheists and evolutionists. None of these understandably natural and not at all magical incidental structures poses any challenge whatsoever for evolution or those who understand it. As you see some longer quotes, think carefully about the examples involved. Ask if even one could have evolved. The World to Come. The Restored Church of God presents David C. Pack, author of 80 books and booklets, editor-in-chief of The Real Truth magazine, read by countless and growing numbers in every nation and territory of the world. In a violent age, full of bad news, answering life's greatest questions straight from the Bible and announcing the wonderful good news of the world to come. And now, David C. Pack. First is the human eye. This amazing mechanism is spectacularly complex and an inspiring testimony to God's supreme intelligence. Three statements from one source represent the magnitude of difficulty in the human eye evolving to its extraordinary complexity. The most amazing component of the eye, as a camera, is its film or retina. This light-sensitive layer, which lines the back of the eyeball, is thinner than a sheet of saran wrap and is vastly more sensitive to a wider range of light than any man-made film. The best man-made film can handle a range of 1,000 to 1 in sensitivity. By comparison, the human retina can handle the dynamic range of light of 10 billion to 1 or 10 million times more and can sense as little as a single photon of light in the dark. In bright daylight, the retina bleaches out and turns its volume control way down so as not to overload. The light-sensitive cells of the retina are like an extremely complex high-gain amplifier. There are over 10 million such cells in the retina, and they are packed together with a density of 200,000 per millimeter in the highly sensitive fovea. 
These photoreceptor cells have a very high rate of metabolism and must completely replace themselves about every seven days. If you look at a very bright light such as the sun, they immediately burn out but are rapidly replaced in most cases. Because the retina is thinner than the wavelength of visible light, it is totally transparent. When it comes to this sort of argument about how difficult it is for humans to duplicate the precision of microscopic components, the primary difference between our perspectives is that you're arguing for an authority dictating design from the top down, where I have to contest you by pointing out that this complexity is actually emergent from the bottom up. That's our basic conflict on a broader scale, too. So when you argue that humans can't build molecular structures as well as atoms can, we can imagine our big old fat fingers trying to put those atoms together. That's kind of like what you're talking about here, too. For example, the film in a camera, back when they used film, was constructed at our macroscopic level. So if you examine it closely enough, it's just a crudely chemically coated sheet. So it couldn't possibly be either as thin or as efficient as a couple hundred thousand specialized cells per millimeter. They're so tiny, you can pack an awful lot in, and that membrane would still be thinner than a sandwich bag. Having a high rate of metabolism at the cellular level is normal too, and many cells are replaced much faster than photoreceptive cells. And we should expect that their ability to perform their one function would be enhanced by evolution to optimize for different levels of light. Otherwise, they're largely binary, either firing or not firing. And this is complicated only by whether the receptor or is centered or off-center. Now, some compression of data is necessary because there are only about a million axon fibers serving 130 million receptor cells. And tests show that the human retina is not sensitive enough to detect only a single photon, but it's pretty close. However, you were flat wrong when you said that... Each of these minute photoreceptor cells is vastly more complex than the most sophisticated man-made computer. Because the metric you gave to justify that was that... It has been estimated that 10 billion calculations occur every second in the retina before the light image even gets to the brain. It is sobering to compare this performance to the most powerful man-made computer. You just said that each individual receptor is better than any of our most powerful computers because 10 million of them combined in the entire retina collectively can produce 10 billion calculations per second. Now, why are we calling them calculations? Let's call them operations. That's more accurate. So even if your numbers were correct, the math is still wrong. If there are 10 million photoreceptors in the retina working together to perform 10 billion operations per second, then those cells are only performing 1,000 operations per second each. You think that each individual cell outperforms our most powerful computers? The oldest laptop I have, one from seven years ago, uh, performs a couple billion operations per second. And now we're up to petaflops. That's not trillions, but quadrillions of operations per second. Remember when I told you how Richard Leakey said that quote mining was the hallmark of creationism stupidity? Well, your argument is not your argument. All you do is quote other people. And in this case, you're quoting Dr. David Mentum. A paid distortionist with the pseudoscience propaganda mill answers in Genesis. As I pointed out before, they are contractually obliged to misrepresent the data however they need to in order to promote their desired illusion. Dishonest misrepresentation is literally his job. He demonstrates that here where he wrote a, a false analysis pretending to dispute data that no one has ever even seen. And that's why the data was deliberately distorted and misrepresented in your earlier claim, too. But since he's a creationist, then he doesn't have any of his own studies either. It's becoming a feedback loop because you're quoting someone who is himself quoting someone else. In an article published in the computer magazine Byte, Dr. John Stevens said, 
to simulate 10 milliseconds of the complete processing of even a single nerve cell from the retina would require the solution of about 500 simultaneous nonlinear differential equations 100 times and would take at least several minutes of processing time on a Cray supercomputer. Keeping in mind that there are 10 million or more such cells interacting with each other in complex ways, it would take a minimum of 100 years of Cray time to simulate what takes place in your eye many times every second. Modern computers would only barely improve this. All these assertions of impressive sounding numbers are essentially meaningless to your argument because now you're talking about data transmission through a nerve cell and confusing that with the computational capacity of the photoreceptor cell and comparing that to how we would duplicate it with a now antiquated system that doesn't have the inbuilt efficiency of millions of specialized microscopic cells. None of that matters, nor is it relevant, and you don't understand what this means because you don't do any of your own study. Evolutionary biologist Dr. Ernst Mayer, considered the Darwin of the 20th century, once said, it is a considerable strain on one's credulity to assume that finely balanced systems such as certain sense organs, the eye of vertebrates, or the bird's feather could be improved by random mutations. Knowing how creationists like to quote mine, I thought I would point out what Ernst Mayer said just one sentence after that. However, the objectors to random mutations have so far been unable to advance any alternative explanation that was supported by substantial evidence. And you still haven't. Understand that most of what we know about evolution was discovered in the last 40 years, with the bulk of that being within the last 20 years. So it doesn't make any sense for you to cite a book that was written over 70 years ago in 1942. Because now we can pinpoint which mutations do what, and we can trace phylogenies with dysfunctional genes to show which mutations did what. And so what we know about evolution now dwarfs what Mayer knew, and he knew far more than Darwin did. Charles Darwin said the very thought of the eye's complexity gave him chills. No, he didn't. Darwin never said that. Now this from an article, Does the Human Eye Prove That God Exists? In very basic form, the eye is thought to have first developed in animals about 550 million years ago. But such is its perfect design, its infinite adaptability, and irreducible complexity that many argue it is proof of the divine itself. In Origin of Species, Darwin remarked that the whole idea of something so flawless could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, he said, absurd in the highest degree. Yet reason tells me that if numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor, can be shown to exist, if further the eye does vary ever so slightly and the variations be inherited, which is certainly the case, and if any variation or modification in the organ be ever useful to the animal under changing conditions of life, then the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable to our imagination, could hardly be considered real. Your uh, mind quotation cut that part out. Darwin continued from there explaining how the eye is not irreducibly complex. In fact, he showed a sequence of examples reducing its complexity, which also indicate an evolutionary development. In fact, he said, I can see no great difficulty in believing that natural selection has converted the simple apparatus of an optic nerve merely coated with pigment and invested in a transparent membrane 
into an optical instrument as perfect as is possessed by any member of the great articulate class. The eye has become a focal point for biologists, ophthalmologists, physicists, and many other branches of science ever since. So when a Spanish neuroscientist made the first anatomical diagrams of neurons in the retina in 1900, it stoked a century of biologists attempting to unlock the eye's secrets. There have been several discoveries. Unlike our ears and nose, for example, which never stop growing our entire lives, our eyes remain the same size from birth. Then there's the complicated process of irrigation, lubrication, cleaning, and protection that happens every time we blink, an average of 4.2 million times a year. There are other astonishing inbuilt systems too. For example, a little trick called the vestibulo-ocular reflex, VOR. In short, it's our own personal steady cam, an inbuilt muscular response that stabilizes everything we see by making tiny imperceptible eye movements in the opposite direction to where our head is moving. Without VOR, any attempts at walking, running, even the minuscule head tremors you make while you read these words would make our vision blurred, scattered, and impossible to comprehend. A huge amount is known about optics and the muscles around the eyes, says Claire O'Connell, an MIT fellow. But the retina is the great unknown territory. It's one of the most complex tissues in the human body. So we know that the first eyes developed well more than 550 million years ago and that they first consisted only of a single pigmented photoreceptive cell, but nowhere near as specialized as what we have now. They could only see light and dark and they couldn't focus or detect direction. So movement stabilization wasn't even an issue until the eye improved to detect direction and then to bring an image into focus. In our evolutionary history, our ancestors had eyes before they had brains. And these were initially very simple pigmented cells. As our eyes developed and improved their abilities, our brains developed and improved our ability to interpret those images. This is a necessity with a very strong selective pressure, as is the maintenance for cleaning and blinking. So of course, evolution definitely has the ability to adapt the vestibulo-ocular reflex, also known as image gaze stabilization. Even if that hadn't been hardwired into our ancestors, any living being would have to adapt it within the course of its own life. We know how this works, and we know that it works. So you have no argument for God here. This gap is closed. You are left to draw your own conclusions about how such a marvelous organism could have evolved. No wonder my optometrist told me he believes the eye did not evolve. He knew it could not, but rather was invented by the greatest inventor. Says the guy wearing glasses. Your eye is not an organism. You are an organism. Multicellular organisms have organs made of multiple cells. Individual cells have organelles, which serve essentially the same function, just at a smaller scale. Your optometrist does not know that the eye could not evolve because we know that it can, because we've shown how it could, and you can't show how it can't. As Darwin said, there should be numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor, and then he showed it. The simplest example of that is one even simpler than he knew, a photoreceptive organelle as represented by primitive protists. Even animals that have no brains and no organs, like jellyfish, can still have simple eyes, basically no more than light sensors or light-sensitive pigment cells with a nervous connection. 
From there, we can go a couple of different directions. Complex eyes have evolved according to a half dozen different patterns. The red cup-like shape at the end of this arm of a starfish is equivalent to a single component of an arthropod's compound eye. So starfish have at least five very basic eyes looking in all directions. Horseshoe crabs are arthropods with two compound eyes and a half dozen simpler eyes all over it, including one on its tail. Of course, the more photoreceptor cells that you have, the better your visual acuity. That's why dragonflies have 29,000 lenses on each side, where we have a couple hundred thousand photoreceptor cells in the same area of our eyes. Another option is to put the photosensitive pigment cells, or opsins, in a bowl-like depression, as in Lisp planaria, so that you can sense the direction of light. If the bowl is further enclosed, it becomes a pinhole eye, like the Nautilus, and is even capable of focusing to some degree, even without a lens. In more advanced camera eyes, the opsin becomes a retina, and a lens is formed out of a covering of the eye by transparent proteins appropriated from a previous purpose. The human eye is a marvel of incidental engineering, but it is not the most advanced eye in nature. The eyes of the octopus are actually more advanced than ours because they develop in somewhat reverse order from ours, so the one thing they can't see are the veins in the back of their own eyes, which we sometimes do in bright light. They also don't have the blind spot that we do, because their eyes are built more correctly than ours. It is also possible to have the lens fill that cavity rather than covering it, creating the effect of a concave mirror, like the many eyes of this scallop. So we have numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor, with slight variations inherited, with each modification being subtle and ever useful, so there is no difficulty in seeing how the eye could have developed naturally through several successive stages, just as Darwin predicted. Now, if you were to show evidence of God, you would have to show first that he exists, and you've given no indication of that. If you ever do, then you'd also have to show that he could actually do anything. And how does he do that? What is the mechanism, and how does it work? So far, you haven't even shown that there is a there there. And notice also that no arthropod has the type of eye that vertebrates do, nor vice versa. According to the laws of evolution, every new species can only modify the traits that they've inherited from their ancestors, but a magical creator could do whatever he wants. So some mammals might have feathers, and some insects might have camera eyes, and certainly humans would have better eyes than an octopus, but it's not like that at all. There is every indication that eyes certainly did evolve, and that your god is only imaginary. After thousands of years, scientists only recently discovered the reason for eyelashes. But notice the uncertain terms they still use. Surprisingly, the real reason eyelashes evolved has remained unknown. Research shows that those who lack lashes, which some do, suffer higher than average rates of eye infection. That suggests they have some sort of protective function. But exactly what this is and how it works has been a mystery. Some people hypothesize that lashes protect eyes from falling dust. Others think that they act rather like an animal's whiskers, detecting foreign bodies before they can do harm and triggering a protective blink. David Hugh of the Georgia Institute of Technology and his colleagues think they have cracked the problem. Eyelashes do not protect eyes directly. Rather, they change the flow of air around the eye in ways that stop dust and other irritants getting in and moisture getting out. Scientists use uncertain terms because science is an investigation, not a belief system. Unlike religion, they're not trying to sell you something. Instead, the goal is to understand what is really real, not to make people believe what is not real, which is your goal. You complain that investigators use honest language where you yourself do not. 
You speak with complete conviction, yet you're always wrong all the time. It is dishonest to assert as fact that which is not evidently true, but that is all you do. Only God has life inherent in himself. This is what makes him God. Yet God created all the physical materials men use to design and make their own gods. It was God who made this master clock of the universe. He set the heavens in motion and man learned to use its wonderful accuracy. You couldn't back up any of your empty assertions, which makes them tantamount to lies. That's because you're a man of faith, and faith means pretending to know what you don't really know. And in your case, that's painfully obvious. The next excerpt shows God's genius in thinking through each detail. The crucial observation that led Dr. Hugh to this conclusion was that no matter what species of mammal he examined, and he studied 22, the length of its lashes was on average a third of the width of its eye. Scientists conducted an experiment to test their theory and discovered nature has, it turns out, arrived at the optimum eyelash length to keep the cornea moist and dust-free. Of course, no mention of God, just nature did this. By reducing airflow over the cornea, eyelashes create a boundary layer of slow-moving air. That stops dust getting through and also promotes water retention since moisture is not blown away. Up to a point, the boundary layer grows thicker as the lashes grow longer. But long lashes also act as a funnel, channeling moving air into the eye and disrupting the protective layer. The thickest boundary layer comes when there is a 1 to 3 ratio between lash length and eye width. Their main job, if Dr. Hugh is right, is to be a windbreak. Kind of obvious, isn't it? Mammals have had eyelashes for almost as long as they've had hair. All modern mammals are derived from a common ancestor who lived well more than 100 million years ago, and that lineage should already have had sufficient generations to hardwire this 1 to 3 ratio. Again, this is one of the easiest problems for evolution to solve, and there is a significant selective pressure to do so. So you can't claim it as evidence for God if it's better explained by something else. Evolution remains the best explanation. It's the only explanation, really, and it's the one we can actually prove to be true.